Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Way better than the 9 a.m. Totally silent at the 9 a.m. That was terrible. Good job. <clears throat> it's Advent. Kind of can't believe it's the fourth week of Advent. Uh, and we are right around the corner from Christmas Eve. In just a couple days, we will be celebrating Christmas Eve. And, uh, you know, Advent is this season where we're supposed to be, as Christians, taking an intentional time to prepare our hearts to get ready to worship Jesus properly and fully on Christmas Eve. The point of Advent is that we're taking a rhythm, this kind of yearly annual rhythm to take four weeks out and have some kind of intentionality behind our actions, behind our life, behind the way we structure our days and our week to make sure that Christmas doesn't come out of nowhere and surprise us. Where all of a sudden the, the thing we're most excited for is Christmas instead of actually Christ. One of the challenges I know as a Christian, and I've experienced this many times in the past, and I suspect that a number of you here in this room today might be experiencing something similar, is that oftentimes, Christmas, you kind of go into the Advent season with this hope. All right, this time it's going to be about Jesus. This time I'm going to have this intentional, carved out space of worship. It's going to be about Christ. And then Christmas comes around, Christmas comes and goes. And you look back, and the thing you most remember about it was the Hallmark holiday aspect of Christmas, and less about Jesus. Isn't that the case? How many times have you had all the best motivation and intention in the world? This time it's going to be different. And then you get to Christmas, and it's pretty much the same as it's always been. Christmas should be a powerful season of spiritual revival in your life. Advent ought to be marked as a time where you carve out this space to slow down, to practice your spiritual disciplines, and to come in communion with your Lord and God. But oftentimes it's the opposite of that. Today I want to address that, and I want to do that in a way that I think is going to be very helpful. We've been studying Matthew chapter 1 throughout Advent. And in Matthew chapter 1, what we learn is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's this amazing genealogy. And and Matthew, Matthew begins his gospel, his historical record of the life of Jesus by giving us this genealogy. And we've done something I've never seen any other church do. We've taken four sermons to go through Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy. I've never seen another church do that, but I think it's so helpful for two reasons. Number one, the genealogy is critical because if we're going to understand the incarnation and what Christmas is all about, the birth of Jesus, we've got to understand that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. That's the first three quarters of your Bibles is the Old Testament. He was prophesied, he was foretold, and Jesus had to meet very specific criteria to be the legitimate Messiah. And so when Matthew gives us his genealogy, he's showing us Jesus meets the criteria. He's the son of David, of the tribe of Judah, a son of Abraham, check, check, check. He can make a legitimate claim to be the Messiah. But another thing we've learned as we've studied this genealogical account is that Jesus uniquely identifies with us in our brokenness. In the last three weeks, we've studied the lives of all these names that have come in the family tree of Jesus. And what we've seen is that Jesus has a really messed up family tree. He looks back at his genealogy and, and you see his uncles or you see his grandparents and his great-grandparents and his great-grandparents after that. And you look at these stories of brokenness. You look at the stories of hurt and pain. And something about reading about Jesus' family tree makes me 
as someone who has a broken family tree, take a sigh of relief that my Savior can identify with what that means. And I suspect that he identifies with many of you in that way as well. One of the reasons Matthew starts this genealogical account this way is to show you that the Messiah recognizes your pain. The stories that are chosen, the names that are intentionally left in this genealogical account. Remember we said a genealogy in those days was like bragging rights. This would be like your resume. I'm the son of so-and-so. I'm the son of so-and-so. And that might get you a job or make you lose a job, depending on who your father and great-grandfather was. But Jesus intentionally, when Matthew gives Jesus' account, he leaves some names that make us wonder, why are they in there? There's a lot of brokenness recorded. And it's so that we understand Jesus steps into our story. He identifies with you. And that's critical for us as we prepare for Advent. Now, it's my job this morning to bring this to a close. In the first week, week one of Advent, uh, we took time to look at four unique women that were in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Very unique thing for women to show up in the genealogy, specifically those four women. And today we're going to look at the fifth woman that appears in Jesus' genealogy. If you got your Bibles, open up to Matthew 1. We're only going to be there for a moment, and then we're going to jump over to the Gospel of Luke. But Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to finish this genealogy for us, page 807. Matthew's the first book of your New Testament if you're in your apps. Verse 16 reads this. Coming to the end of his genealogy, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and his mother was a woman named Mary. And Mary was chosen by God to carry Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel means God with us. And, and she was chosen by God. Likely, Mary was between the ages of 13 and 16. Just picture that. She was a young teenage girl, 16 years at tops is how old Mary was. When an angel appeared to her, said, Mary, you're going to carry this child. And Mary ran off. She was nervous, scared, fearful, every, all of the above. And she ran off to her cousin Elizabeth's house. Now, Elizabeth was, pre was pregnant with John the Baptist at the time. And you remember the scene. I preached on this when we, when we talk about uh, children being a full life in the womb. It was John the Baptist that leaped inside of Elizabeth's womb as he got near to Jesus Christ. When Mary came near and Mary's belly had Jesus inside, John the Baptist inside of Elizabeth's womb leapt with joy at the coming of Jesus into his presence. Mary at that moment prays a prayer that just shook me this week. The prayer is a very famous prayer. It's called the Magnificat. All through church history, this has been a very memorable and important prayer throughout church history. And i got to be honest with you, as I studied it this week, I, I spent time, I broke the whole thing down, did a whole own translation on it. I was getting into all the techno technical stuff that pastors get into. And about halfway through the week, I had to just lean back from my desk and sit in awe at this prayer. It brought me to worship. It brought me to a place that I needed to get to this Christmas. What I want to do for you today is I want to walk through this prayer, Mary's prayer. She's the last person in the genealogy we're going to discover, going to learn about. It's Luke chapter 1. So open up to Luke chapter 1. It should be found on page 856 of your Bibles. And what I want to show you from this prayer is three needs everyone in this room has if we're going to have a true Advent reorientation this Christmas. 
If truly in your heart of hearts, you're going to be able to say this Christmas, I worship God the way he's supposed to be worshipped, and my soul was stirred with the flame of worship, I want to show you three needs that we learn from Mary's prayer. Let's read the whole prayer together. Mary says this. Verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Church, don't you want to pray like that? You know, here's this young teenage girl that I got a feeling as we study this prayer and get into what she just prayed, what we just read, that that simple prayer she prayed in that moment of crying out to God was more complex and powerful than most of the prayers we pray on a weekly basis. This 16-year-old girl just put us to shame. What is it that she knew about God that allowed her to pray that powerfully? Well, I want to point it out to us. There's three needs we have. Number one, We need a greater vision of God. If we're going to worship well this Christmas, we need a greater vision of who God is. The reality is that one of the reasons we don't worship God with a hunger, with an enthusiasm, with a heart crying out on your knees, love of God, that stirs like a flame in your soul, is because we have a very small vision of who God is. And what Mary does is she broadens our picture. She stirs us to think of God as greater than we have been thinking about him. Verse 48, she says, He has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. She's recalling Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel verse 11, where, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. And what she's saying is she's remembering that God watches everything in your life. There's not a moment that goes by that God's not intimately aware of. He sees it all. He knows your thoughts and he knows you better than you know you. He knows your hearts. He knows your brokenness. He knows your strength. He knows it all. He sees it all. He's watching you. She remembers that he's totally over everything. Verse 49, she says, he who is mighty, he who's mighty. That's taken right out of Psalm 89, verse 8. His might signifies his strength. It's his power. You know, when she thinks of God, how many of you pray like this? You get on your knees and you say, God, you are mighty. You're mighty to save. You're mighty to do great things for me. When she thinks of God, her heart is stirred to think of his strength over every situation, every brokenness in her life. There's not anything that she will come against in her life that God is not stronger than. And she's aware of that, and it leads her in her worship. Verse 49, holy is his name. Now, I could preach a a slew of sermons just on that exact phrase. Holy is his name. Holy has two kind of meanings to it. On the one hand, it means set apart. She's saying, God, you are totally different than me. You are unlike me. Though I'm made in the image of God and though Jesus became flesh, God in his fullness is utterly set apart. He's in a different category than anything else in all creation. 
but it also means perfect righteousness. God is the essence of morality and righteousness. In fact, he is over morality. Morality is morality because it emanates from God. Morality is not something separate that God submits to. Morality, as we know it, emanates from God. He is the objective, official definition of what morality is. Holy is his name. Verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 10. God is merciful. Mercy means you don't get what you do deserve. What this means is that when she thinks of who this God is, She's drawn to the reality of her own sin, and she remembers that God is a God of mercy, that he looks down on those who are full of much sin, and he offers forgiveness, and he's slow to anger. Remember what the Israelites prayed in Exodus, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, keeping steadfast love to thousands. His mercy extends throughout the generations. And Mary knows that applies to her as well. 16 years old. You get get a sense of this girl's prayer life? Verse 51, he has shown strength. Now that's a slightly different meaning on the word that we used mighty earlier on. When we talk about his strength in this sense, we're talking about his sovereignty. He is over all things. Everything that is, every molecule in existence in the known and unknown universe is held in place by God. He is over every authority. He is over every power. He is over every person. It is all under his sovereign strength. Quoting straight from Psalm 89.10, he brings down the mighty. Verse 52, that's out of Job chapter 5.11. You know, every authority that's in power on this earth is in power so long as God sustains it in power. There's no king, there's no president, there's no leader, there's no nothing who's not in place because God has ordained it, and that will end on the day God says it is ordained to end, period. He's over every authority. He brings down the mighty when he says they come down. She's brought to prayer thinking about his sovereignty over the powers. Verse 53, he fills the hungry with good things. Quoted from Psalm 34.10. Did you know God cares deeply about your needs? It's our physical hunger, yes, the things that we need to survive, but also your spiritual hunger. When you cry out to God in the inner, the inner longings of your soul, in what the New Testament calls the inner man, when your inner man or inner woman cries out to God and says, I need, I need to be filled by the real God. I need more than a Hallmark holiday. I need the living God. God satisfies you with good things. It's not the prosperity gospel. It doesn't mean you get money and health, wealth, and prosperity. No, that's a lie. What he gives you is spiritual blessing. He says, I'll be enough for you. I'll meet you in your brokenness. Verse 54, he remembers his promises to Abraham. Psalm, that's from Psalm 132, 11. Are you noticing how she prays scripture, by the way? That's why I'm telling you where all this comes from. And there's more verses she's quoting that I'm leaving out. Mary is looking back at the promises that were made in the Old Testament. And she's saying, those promises are mine. You haven't forgotten your promises to your people. You know them. This is part of who you are. Here's a young teenage girl whose soul magnifies the Lord. She's got a vision of God that's ten times bigger than most in this room, ten times bigger than mine, I'm certain of it. 
Her knowledge of God has created a vision in her mind that's captivating and compelling to her and everyone around her. He's become her all. Everything about her is wrapped up in who God is. He's greater than the most beautiful poetry. He's more compelling than the most soul-stirring artwork. He's holy and he's sovereign and he is to be feared because that's who he is. He is God. We wonder why we have a hard time worshiping. We wonder why we have a hard time making the main thing the main thing at Christmas. It's because our vision of God's so small. It's because our vision of God's so small. I want to lift up our mind and our eyes to have a greater vision of God. Let him consume your intellect and your imagination. He is bigger than you would ever dream. He's bigger than, than you could ever place. All the boxes and the categories that we try to fit him into, he doesn't fit into those categories. He's bigger than that. He is who he is. Remember when he said that? I am who I am, period. He is to be feared, for with him are the keys to life and death. He holds the keys to how long you live. He holds the date to when you leave this earth, and he holds the keys to where you will spend your eternity. That ought to make you have a healthy fear of the man. That ought to make you stand in an awe of God and say, God, you are so far removed and distant from me, I can't even begin to understand it. See, we need a bigger vision of God. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Literally, the heavens proclaim him. When you think of those pictures of the Hubble telescope with just billions and billions of galaxies lighting up the pitch black outer space darkness, every one of those galaxies is on its exact course because God holds it in its place. And yet he also knows you. He knows the hairs on your head. He's not just distant, he's not just a creator God that spins the world into motion, but he's imminent. He stepped into your world through Jesus Christ, that's Christmas, through the incarnation. He knows you better than you know you. You see, when I say we need an Advent reorientation, what I mean is that we, we need to allow our souls to be stirred again. We gotta get out of this, go through the motion of religion thing and, and actually sit and kneel before a holy God and say, it's all too wonderful for me. My soul magnifies the Lord. I'm not talking about the warm fuzzies that come from sitting with a warm cup of coffee underneath your Christmas tree. I'm not talking about the spirit of Christmas. Don't confuse the spirit of Christmas for the Holy Spirit. Two different things. And it's very easy to confuse the two of them because you can go through Christmas and be all cuddly, cozy, and surrounded by family and think you nailed it. And if you miss Jesus, you didn't come anywhere close. Jesus needs to be worshipped in full. He deserves that. He's worthy of that. The question is not, does your soul magnify or does your spirit rejoice? Everyone's soul is magnifying someone or something. And everyone's spirit is rejoicing in something. The question is, what or to whom is your spirit rejoicing? Do you love Christmas more than Christ? I pray not. I pray that the incarnation would consume your heart. Our second need is this. First need, we need a bigger vision of God. Our second need is that we need a much smaller vision of ourselves. 
We need a much smaller vision of ourselves. Throughout, one, throughout Mary's prayer, one thing that bleeds off the page is her humility. I hope you saw that when we were reading through it. Verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's from Psalm 35, verse 9. She begins by saying, I need a Savior. You recognize that? Her, her posture is not that she can do this thing called spirituality on her own and, and satisfy her spiritual needs by going through the motion. She recognizes she needs someone to step in between her and a holy God on her behalf. That's what a Savior is. She looks to God and she says, my spirit rejoices. It, it, it leaps with excitement of the fact that God is sending a Savior for me. Verse 48, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That word's repeated again in verse 54. He's helped, I'm sorry, uh, in verse 52, he has exalted those of humble estate. That word humble estate, it's taken from Psalm, or I'm from, sorry, from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, Hannah's prayer again. The word humble estate means lowly. It means unpretentious. In, in a sense, it almost means incapable. Mary has this vision of herself that's very low. She recognizes that she is not someone that has anything to boast in. She's not someone special in and of herself. She's in need of a savior, actually. She recognizes her unpretentiousness. And then almost the flip, the other side of that is verse 48. She calls herself his servant. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel. Right? The word is actually doulos. A more blunt translation of that is slave. When she thinks of the relationship between her and her God, it's you tell me what to do and I do it. I'm not a self-autonomous woman, says Mary. I'm not trying to pave my way and get more power for myself. And I'm not trying to be someone special. I'm just trying to listen to my God and do exactly what he says to do, and I worship in that space. In fact, that's the best place for me. Wherever you tell me to go, whatever you tell me to do, I'm in, because you're my master, and I'm your servant. And she rejoices in that posture. She's not rejoicing in trying to be self-autonomous. She's rejoicing in being a servant of God. Verse 51, he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Repeat it again, verse 52, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. You know, if you bring pretentiousness and pride into your relationship with God, I'm not sure if you understand the gospel. God will, God will strip that out of you, either in this life or the next. If you try to keep some sense of pride and your own strength and your own ability and then try to have a relationship with God, time and time again, Jesus in the Gospels looks down on people who are bringing pride and arrogance into their relationship with God, and, and he tears it down. And you can't have an authentic relationship with God so long as there's pride in your heart. If you're going to worship the Christ of Christmas, if you're going to have a reorientation these last few days of Advent, it's going to require seeing yourself in a humble estate like Mary. When she exclaims that her soul magnifies the Lord, literally the other side of that is humility. It's the byproduct of what's happening. To magnify the Lord on this side is to recognize your humility and your humble posture on this side. You can't do both. You, you, you can't magnify God and magnify yourself. These two things are linked to each other. You see his greatness and you see your lowliness. There's a man in church history named Augustine, one of the great 
man in church history. He wrote many things that we still read today. And he came up with this phrase to describe the problem with humanity, the main issue that sin brings into our life. It's a Latin phrase. In, it's, I don't read Latin, so let me try it. It's incurvatus and say. Literally, the translation is curved in on yourself. You're curved in on oneself. Martin Luther picked up on this, and much of Martin Luther's theology is based on Augustine's work with this idea. The idea is this, that we've curved in on ourselves. Our life is meant to be like an arrow pointing up to God. That's Romans chapter 1. We have built into the fabric of what it means to be human the ingrained knowledge that there is a triune God. And he is worthy of worship. And what is the natural state of affairs without sin being involved is that we live as a servant of that God. We delight in him. We bring glory to him. Everything about our life is like an arrow pointing straight up to God. You look at me and you're just deflected to look up to God. There's nothing proud or boastful here. It's all just up there. We're an arrow pointing to heaven. But we curved in on ourselves, says Augustine. We've taken that arrow and we've just curved it down. And we curve that arrow in on ourselves, and we're walking around like hunched over arrows trying to boast and find glory in ourselves, trying to bring strength and power to ourselves, as if we're something to boast in. Think how silly that looks, curved over arrows thinking that we're something, walking around bringing glory to ourselves. There's no glory to be had here. What is that, says Augustine? There, there's nothing here. If this is what the epitome of glory is, then the world's in a whole lot of trouble. But if there's a God who's worthy of all glory, then the world has hope. And what Augustine says is we need to, we need to straighten ourselves out. We need, to, we need to take that arrow and we need to learn how to straighten it back up to God so that once again we're an arrow pointing up to heaven. And the way that begins is recognizing the humility of saying, the arrow doesn't point to me. My life is not about pointing to me. My life is about pointing up to God and pointing everyone there. And the natural reaction of what happens to that is humility starts to well up in you because you realize your life is not about you. This happens slowly, increasingly, day in, day out, decision by decision, moment by moment. We recognize that we need to be straightened out. I love this picture that was reminded of this this week. Look at this guy. You can put the picture up there of the, the guy standing at the Grand Canyon. Look at this guy. No one goes to the, I don't know who this guy is. I feel bad that I'm using him as an, as an illustration here, right? But you don't go to the Grand Canyon and take a picture of yourself, right? When you're standing in the most beautiful place of all of God's creation, no one wants to see a picture of this mug on the screen. They want to see a picture of the Grand Canyon. I know he's just trying to take a picture of himself there. But the point is this. When you stand before the Grand Canyon... You should get a picture of your smallness. You shouldn't be suddenly turned in on yourself trying to think of how great you are. You can take that down. <laughs> it's the same thing as when you stand under the night sky. When, you, when you're sitting in a black night sky, you get out of the city for a moment, you see all the stars out there, and you see how small you are. You recognize your smallness. When you stand on the coast and you look out at the ocean, you see the waves crashing in, the same waves that have crashed in since the earth was created by God. You suddenly have a, a realization of your humble estate. The greatest need in your life is not your job. The greatest need in your life is not your emotional ups and downs. It's not what school your children get into or don't get into. It's not your home. It's not the food you're going to eat. 
The greatest need in your life is the need of your soul to find its worth and its greatest value wrapped up in the majesty of the King of Kings. And until God forms that in you, until he begins to give you a true sense of your humility when you stand before a holy God, his work with you is far from done. He's got a lot of work to do. We need to be straightened out. Mary's perspective must become our perspective. We're not going to get to heaven and stand before the throne room of God and boast in ourselves and say, look at how great I am. Look at what I've done. We're going to get to the throne room of God and fall on our face and say, I don't belong here. You're too, you're too much else. You're too great. I don't have words to say how great it is. One of my favorite scenes in all of Scripture is Isaiah chapter 6. This poor guy, Isaiah, he gets suddenly caught up in a vision into the throne room of God. Now, if you don't understand why I say this poor guy, you don't get God yet. We don't belong in that space. Humans don't belong in the throne room of God. And the first thing Isaiah does is he recognizes that. He cries out, woe is me. And then he says, for I am undone. I love that language. Your ESV translation says, for I am lost. A better translation is, I am undone. It means I'm, I'm coming apart at the seams, standing before a holy God. Literally, I'm, I'm, I'm broken. I'm, I'm being destroyed in the process of being in this place. And then God reaches out to Isaiah as he sees Isaiah in a humble posture and he anoints him and says, I've made it possible for you to stand here. I'm undone. I'm wrecked. Mary considers God's greatness and the first reaction she has is to then consider her own humility. Church, if you want to develop a true heart like Mary that's in awe of God, that gets to Christmas and the most, the most exciting thing in your life is not Christmas but it's Christ, you got to start forming a sense of humility in you. Remember, Jesus told us to consider others as better than yourself. You know how hard that is for me? I, honestly, I'm going to just confess. This is confession. I, every week I have to repeat that to myself. Because here's what happens. I'm in conversations with people. I see how people are leading and managing things. And here's what I'm thinking in my mind. I wouldn't have made that decision. I would have done that a whole lot better. I would have behaved differently. And then i got to go back to Jesus' words. Where Jesus says, whoa, Rafe. <laughs> You got no glory, son, right? It's my glory. You think of others as better than yourself. And I got to go back and I got to say, no, they are better than me. It is so easy for pride to creep up in our hearts and it will detract us from worship. We got to weed it out. We have to strip it out. How much time have we wasted curved in on ourselves? All right, last point. We need to train our spirits to rejoice. We need to train our spirits to rejoice, to find joy in God. When you look at Mary's prayer, Mary's prayer is bleeding with joy for God. Now consider Mary for a moment. Mary is in a very tough spot. Talk about a young girl who's going into trial. Mary is 13 to 16 years old, and she's pregnant, and she's going to go back to the small town of Bethlehem in first century Israel. Talk about some trial. Talk about judging eyes. Talk about people looking in, not understanding the situation, not understanding anything. Talk about a, a young woman being in a fearful place. And yet what comes out of her? 
My soul rejoices in the God of my salvation. See, when you understand true joy and what it means to be in relationship with God and for joy to well up inside of you, it surpasses and trumps even those trials in in your life. This type of rejoicing in the midst of life challenges is not the natural way of things. The natural way of things is misery in 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 the life that we live, in the trials that we go through. It's about being sad and and finding difficulty in those trials. The unnatural, the supernatural way that Christians live in the midst of trials is rejoicing. Remember, James says that. I rejoice in my trials. Verse 47, listen to Mary. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That's leaping for joy. Verse 48, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. She's looking at what God has done in her story in her own life, and she's saying, who would be able to look at me, would be able to look at a sinner like me and know that God's done this work in my life and not say that person's been blessed? See, do do you think about that? Do you think about the way that you ought to leap for joy because when others see the amazing work God's done in your life, they're going to say that person is blessed, that God would do that in their life? Do you pray like that? Has that welled up inside of you? Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me. She thinks of what God has done in Mary's life, and the reality is that God has done great things in your life if you're a Christian too. we got to get down on our knees and we got to say, he has done incredible things in my life, and it's worthy of rejoicing. He has exalted those of humble estate. When she considers the impact of God's work in her life, she thinks, I've been exalted. Look, If you're a follower of Christ, you're a son and daughter of the king. Do you know what that makes you? What's the son of a king called in this world? A prince. That makes you a prince and a princess. You know that? You know you get a crown when you get to heaven because you're royalty? Think about that for just a moment. If that doesn't make you actually want to leap a little bit and actually sing, actually jump for joy, I'm not sure you understand what the gospel is. I'm not sure you get it. There's a man named Jonathan Edwards. He wrote much on the topic of our affections and our emotions. He wrote a whole book called The Religious Affections, a very important book. And his point is this, our affections are the seat of true religion. If, tr- if, if your faith in God and what Jesus has done for you on the cross, if it's not sinking in and making you excited, if it's not making you want to sing out loud and say, God is good, look at what he's done, right? If it doesn't want to make you do want to one of those every once in a while. I don't think you got the gospel. I'm not sure you fully understand it because God sent his son to die on the cross for you. God, the second person of the Trinity, was born in the flesh, hung on a cross, shed his blood that you could have forgiveness of sin. If that doesn't make you want to sing, I don't know what will. And it's not just me because I'm the pastor. You say, look, well, you're the pastor. You know, you get to be excited about this. You get to do heel clicks. No, no. No, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm excited about the gospel because the gospel is the gospel. It's good news that I've been saved from my own sin, and God knows I got a lot of that in my life, but God sent his son to die for me, and it's got to stir up our affections. If you never trained yourself to rejoice, and your version of Christianity is come to church, sing the songs, hear the sermon, and then get out for the Bears game, because you got other stuff that brings you more joy, and you got a tailgate thing you got to get to, so you got to make time for that and get over there as fast as you can, I think you missed it. 
This is your priority on a Sunday. You know why? Because this is where we sing. These are the saints that you've been called into family with to stir you on, to stir a flame up in your soul, to tell stories of what God's done in your life, and your life, and your life, and we whirl each other up into a whirlwind of excitement and joy despite our circumstances. The first century church were being burned at the stake as Christians, but they couldn't help but gather together. They couldn't help but sing a song of praise. And we try to race out of here. When God takes a hold of your soul, it must be accompanied by leaping and singing in Christian community. Otherwise, I'm not sure he got a hold of your soul yet. I'm not sure he got you. If you can't sing a song with all your heart, dance like David did before the ark, I don't know if you understand it yet. The doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in the world of preaching, he's known as the doctor. He said it this way, what happens when people are filled with the Holy Spirit as you read throughout Acts is that they want to keep together. They want to get together as often as they can. They continue daily, steadfastly, talking about these things, singing together, praising God together. This was the thing that was first above everything else. Everything else came second. Even their work was something they had to do. It was right that they should do their work. Of course, but this, their communal joy in the God of their salvation was the thing that meant life to them and joy and salvation. Park the gospel that Jesus died for you on the cross, that he shed his blood that you could have life, it's got to well up inside of you. And I don't care what your Myers-Briggs says your personality trait is. I don't care what the Enneagram says you are. If it says you're a melancholy, sad person, I don't care about that. Because when God says that you've been born again, it means you got a new nature. See, whatever you brought into this, no one gets the excuse, well, my dad was like that, and then his dad was like that, and then his dad was like that, so I'm just kind of like that. This is how I go about life. This is what I do. It's been like that forever. I'm just kind of sad about this stuff, or I, I have that addiction because everyone's had it. Well, have you been born again? See, when you get born again and you accept Jesus Christ, he rewrites your nature. He floods you with the Holy Spirit, and what comes out of you is leaping and joy in the midst of life circumstances that's a different kind of leaping and joy than you had before you accepted the gospel. That's how you know you accepted the gospel. It's one of the things that comes out of you is you leap for joy. And if you're afraid to do it, I want to give you permission. If ever there's a place where we could stand, say hallelujah, shout for joy, sing a song at the top of our lungs, it's right here. Thank you, back row. Shout it. The, the air conditioning is going to shout it. If you don't, someone's going to. we got to train ourselves to sing. Oh, that the incarnation would stir up our passions and joy in the glory of God once again. I want to close by telling you a story of a man named Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal was perhaps one of the most intelligent minds to ever walk the face of this earth. Take Stephen Hawking and then multiply him a few times, and he was that of his day, and he was a strong atheist, until he had an encounter with the living God, and he became a Christian. One of the most earth-shattering moments in that day and age when Blaise Pascal became a Christian. You better believe the journals were writing about that they couldn't believe it because he was that great atheist of his day. And years after he died, someone looked inside the inner lining of his suit jacket, and they had found that he had stitched a letter that Blaise Pascal himself had written on the inside of the jacket. And that letter was a recording that he had written one night. 
It was a couple years after he first accepted the Lord Jesus. God came to him at about 10.30 at night, and he had a few hours where he was just caught up into almost an ecstatic state of joy before the Lord. And when he came out of it in the middle of the night, he wrote down all that he could remember of the past few hours, and he stitched it into the inner lining of his jacket. I want you to hear what he wrote. Monday, the 23rd of November, 1645. From about half past 10 until night, at half past 10 at night until about half past midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Renunciation, total and sweet, complete submission to Jesus Christ and to my director. Eternally enjoy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words. Amen. Church, let me invite you. We're going to finish this sermon. Let me invite you to stand up right now. I don't know how else to end this sermon but by singing for joy. So will you join in singing with us? Joy to the Lord. Joy to the Lord.